So, in response to one of our recent prophecy briefs, uh, we got an email from someone who had all kinds of questions about different eschatological, last things kinds of, of issues. Uh, and so I went ahead and I, I thought, you know, there's probably a number of these questions that uh, that are on the minds of other people as well. And so as is kind of my habit when someone asks a question that I think might uh, be more broadly wondered about than just the person who's asking it, I, I, I try to take a little time to do a little Q&A on here. Now, all these questions have to do with eschatology, so we're calling this a prophecy brief as well because we're going to talk about things that have to do with last things or um, or the last days and that. So let me go ahead and, and uh, just start making my way through these questions. It was actually a really, really long couple of emails, and uh, I have a feeling this actually may have been Based on the dates that are mentioned in some of these questions, I have a feeling this this actually was just copied and pasted from uh, from his asking somebody else these things before. But I do think they're pretty good questions, and so I'm going to go ahead and and make my way through. The first one has to do with the issue of setting dates, and there are people online that have YouTube channels that are uh, that are what you would call date setters, or uh, trying to sort of say here's when the rapture is going to happen, and those kinds of things. Or here's when the second coming is going to happen and those kinds of things. Interestingly, Daniel's prophecy um, gives us uh, the means by which we can judge the exact day of Jesus' first coming. And interestingly, after certain events take place, uh, to be able to tell literally down to the day when Jesus will come the second time. Or from Daniel's perspective, the Messiah. And so, uh, of course, now with the New Testament behind us, we understand that the Messiah was, of course, uh, those promises, those messianic hopes were fulfilled in the person of Christ in regard to his first coming and will be further fulfilled and ultimately fulfilled in his second. So, but when it comes to the idea of setting actual dates for those things, when uh, Daniel spoke about um, Jesus' first coming, he gave a point, the rebuilding, the, the call, the command to rebuild, uh, uh, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the day that the Messiah, the king, or the Messiah, the prince, would come to Jerusalem was a certain set period of time, literally 173,880 days between those two dates. And so Jesus comes into town exactly on the day he's supposed to, according to prophecy. What about the second coming? Well, we know the second coming is uh, 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 based again on, on Daniel's you know, 70th week and when that week begins until the end of that seven-year period, we know is 1260, there's a midway point, another 1260 days, and then Jesus comes to restore or to, to uh, establish the millennial kingdom. How about the rapture, though? Is there a way to calculate the date of the rapture? Well, this is the point of a lot of discussion online and certainly Bible believers and students have been uh, studying questions like this for a long time. And of course, understandably, there are YouTube channels that um, that spend a lot of time talking about trying to nail that down. Of course, this is nothing new. Uh, back in the day, you know, back in the 80s, uh, you, you may, if you were a, have been a student of prophecy, you probably are aware of uh, like books like Harold Camping's, um, you know, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 1988 or some, whatever the title was, something like that. But um, and he, of course, he didn't come in 1988. And so, you know, the, but, but the idea of trying to sort of nail down at least some rough period of time in which Jesus would return is a common thing. Um, what about people like that? Um, you know, do we put stock in those kinds of things? Well, let me separate first uh, two things. First off, there are those that are looking at Scripture and considering the various things that um, would point to being able to um, sort of set watch dates, as they're called, watch dates, dates that seem like a a reasonable time to to, to think that the Lord may return uh, for His church in the rapture. Um, and generally, those watch dates are connected with feast dates in Israel. And so, and, and the reason for that is because feast dates in the past also found fulfillment in the in the activities of Christ and these kinds of things you know for the Passover for example Jesus was crucified on the Passover this is fulfillment ultimately of the feast of Passover and so on so you can look at the various feast days the spring and fall feasts and basically get the idea that that on these dates uh, on these feasts I should say uh, there is of course the immediate application of those feasts in Israel but there is a further, looking, uh, forward-looking element to them as well, in which they are fulfilled in a grander sense in the person of Christ or in the activities surrounding uh, his plans um, 
you know, that ultimately, um, um, you know, whether it's his death and crucifixion, whether it's the resurrection, whether it's the birth of the church, or so on. And so the spring feasts, having found fulfillment, we look to the fall feasts and say, well, the rapture probably must fit into one of those. Well, we don't know that for sure. So when it comes to uh, this subject of, of the rapture, we find ourselves in a bit of a quandary. Because there is a tendency to look toward a feast day and say this must be uh, uh, indicative of when the rapture would take place, you know, um, something like that. So, but is that the case or not? Well, in one sense, the short answer is we don't know. It would make sense because other feast days spoke of, uh, again, forward-looking fulfillment in Christ and such. But does the rapture fit into that or not? We don't know exactly. Uh, and, and, and while on the one hand, there's a very strong uh, movement that says, yes, there should be. And I, I'm not going to argue against that because it could be. But I will throw a counter perspective in here. Um, forgive me for using the word devil, but I like to sort of play when I'm looking at these ideas. I like to sort of play the devil's advocate a little bit and challenge some of the ideas and and consider them uh, from other perspectives in that too. Other people do this too. I'm not, that, I'm not special in that way. Just, but, but when I hear the arguments, I try to think of the counter arguments as well and those kinds of things. Well, one particular uh, element that I find interesting is that when the subject of the rapture is spoken of in the New Testament, and I'm taking, uh, if, you're, if you're new with this channel and you're not familiar with some of the perspectives that I've, I've shared on over uh, various episodes, um, what I'm about to say, I want to sort of lay a bit of groundwork for. Um, let me say it first, then I'll come back and lay the groundwork. So when, when the discussion of the rapture happens in the New Testament, i.e. passages like 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, places like this, there is no connection with feast days mentioned when it comes to the rapture. Uh, there's no real push on the part of Paul to to say to look to certain times of year for this to happen. As a matter of fact, it's quite the, obvi- uh, it's quite the opposite. Uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians, when he talks about the rapture coming, he, he uses that as a point of encouragement for believers and encourages them to encourage one another with, with the idea that the day is coming and could even be in their lifetimes, that Jesus will come and get the bride, bring her home, and the sufferings and persecutions they're experiencing would be over. Um, there's really no reason to read those words and not to assume when Paul says we, that he's including himself in the sense that it could be any time. That's different than the second coming. The second coming of Christ is a different event than the rapture of the church. I know there are people that have uh, differing views on that, but that's where I'm coming from on that. So when I say this, when I'm, I'm talking about this idea, this is some of the groundwork. In addition to that, when the subject of the rapture is spoken of in the New Testament, to say that there's never this um, this, uh, this connection with feast days and stuff like that. Um, I think that's an important point because while we do see the fulfillment of a number of things retrospectively in connection with some of the feasts, the rapture is kind of an anomaly that way. Uh, the feasts have to do with Israel to start with. The rapture of the church is not a Jewish thing per se, but rather it's a church thing, which of course is a body, a called out assembly made up of Jews and Gentiles. But the church is a mystery by comparison to something like Israel or Gentiles. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul talks about this mystery, this beautiful bringing together, the, the, the breaking down of the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile into one new body, the church. And it is to the church that this question of the rapture applies. Uh, it does not apply to Israel, per se. Um, and again, we've spent a lot of time talking about this in different episodes, but I'll just kind of mention that here because... When we think about passages having to do with the rapture, we want to make sure we know what passages are in fact referring to the rapture and what passages are not, namely Matthew 24. Matthew 24 does not have the church in view at all. Matthew 24 has Israel in view. And so therefore, for example, a passage like um, uh, Matthew 24, uh, uh, where it speaks about, uh, let me go over to the passage itself, um, uh, here we go, Matthew twenty four forty. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. 
That's not speaking of one being snatched away in the rapture and one not being. That speaks of one ultimately going into the millennium and one being ultimately entering into judgment. Uh, and so, and there, we, we talked about Matthew 24 previously, so I'll, I'll try and put a link to the episode um, uh, in the notes below. But when we talk about the rapture, going back to the discussion of the rapture itself, there is no connection with feast days. And Paul, interestingly, who was a rabbi, a Pharisee as a matter of fact, who would know these connections, never seems to make them in his discussions of the rapture. And so, um, so for that reason, when it comes to ideas like setting dates based on things like feast days, I'm not saying that the rapture wouldn't be connected with a feast day, but I'm just saying I don't know that it necessarily has to be for some reasons that I think are legit. So I'll start to allude to them as we we're just talking. But what about the question of setting dates to begin with? Well, we should not set dates because the Bible uh, in the New Testament, whenever Jesus talks about the idea of awaiting the master's coming, uh, whether Paul talks about it, anytime we see it, Peter, you know, anyone talks about it, there is always a sense of, of immediate expectancy or imminency. There is always the discouragement of saying, my master delays his coming. And how is that not the case if we say that it must happen on a feast day? Because if this feast day passed this year, then now if it's going to be on a feast day, we're waiting till next year. Well, now the master has delayed his coming. And this seems to go completely contrary to what the scriptures say about what our attitudes and mindsets should be in regard to looking for Jesus coming. And again, the immediate nature uh, of Paul's own sense that Jesus is coming soon. Encourage one another. The day is coming soon. We, we really, just in reading the passage at face value, uh, and I would even say deeper than face value, but at the very least at face value, there's no reason to read those passages and not see in there a sense of imminence. And so, um, so that that in terms of that question of setting dates and what about those who set them? Uh, again, I was going to try and separate two things. There are those that that are literally setting dates, but there are others. Uh, and he mentions a, a gentleman named Barry Off that uh, uh, Barry Off that uh, that uh, I'm not super familiar with. I have heard some of his teachings. A good friend of mine sends me links every now and then. And, and he's interesting to watch and to listen to, and, and he definitely loves the word and everything. And this is, this is somebody who's not a heretic, some person who's trying to mislead people, but he is actively diving into the scriptures and considering what the scriptures have to say about this and is, is, um, is putting forth potential dates that come up and say this could be a high watch date or something. Is this a heretic? Is this somebody that is misleading people? I would say no. I think in good faith he's simply looking at what it says in the Scripture and putting it out there for consideration. Now, again, I'm not super familiar with him, so I'm not necessarily vouching for him per se, but I think there's a difference between those that are hard set on setting hard dates and others that are simply looking at the Scripture and saying, well, this seems to be how the Lord has done some things in regard to feast days or whatever that might be. And therefore, this strikes me as being a potential watch date, um, you know, and that kind of thing. If we're always looking for Christ to come, then, then today is a watch day, right? And so, um, um, and, and I, would, I would argue that that is, that is the biblical position that we should always be looking. So that being said, um, let me keep moving through these because actually there's quite a few. I'm not going to spend that much time on every question, but um, let me see how many we can get through here before it gets a little bit long. Um, let's see. Uh, of course, in, within that question is the idea that the rapture, is it soon? Do I believe this? I do believe the rapture is soon. I'm not setting dates, but I do think when you consider what the scriptures say about the conditions of the world prior to Jesus coming to establish his kingdom, we are getting so far into this thing that it's hard to imagine um, the world being more primed and ready. Now, I know people have been saying that kind of thing for generations, but when you consider technology, the mindset of the world in terms of, of embracing the concept of globalism, when you consider uh, Revelation 13 all the way through up until the return of Christ in chapter 19, you have a world that is embracing a leader that has brought them all together and they will ultimately stand against Christ. There are lots of different arenas we can look at right now and see that we are definitely steeped in a time that is ripe for this to take place. Well, if, if Christ's coming comes at the end of Daniel's 70th week, and if you're not a pre-tripper, then forgive me, just cut me some slack on this because I am. But if the, if the rapture happens prior to Daniel's 70th week, then if the second coming is close, how much closer then is the rapture? So I do believe it's soon, although again, I'm not setting dates on that. Uh, let's see, in March, due to the Jews praying for their Messiah, 
um, there is the thought that the Antichrist might come onto the scene very soon. Um, I think that Israel has been praying for her Messiah for a very, very long time. Uh, and so I don't know that that is necessarily an indicator that Antichrist is coming. However, their readiness to receive a Christ, um, of course, is important. And so if the Antichrist um, uh, comes on the scene soon, and I, I believe the Antichrist is alive today. I don't, I don't think he's, he's in power in that position yet. But I do think that he's alive. I think we're that close. Uh, and so when he comes, uh, as Jesus said, uh, there's a number of ways this passage could be somewhat seen to be uh, fulfilled, but but one of those ways is uh, is in the person of Antichrist being received by Israel. When Jesus said, I've come in my Father's name and you reject me, but one will come in his own name and him you will receive. So I do think that uh, that their hearts are primed and ready and they will receive the false, the Antichrist, when he does come. Of course, he'll sign a peace covenant with them. Uh, it, uh, we see at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, He'll violate it three and a half years in, and at that point they'll realize that they have been fooled. Uh, we've talked about this a lot, the question of that the vaccine is the mark of the beast. And in connection with that, the question goes on that if we don't take the vaccine, that we'll all be forced either to take it or we'll be put into isolation camps and that kind of thing. Well, I don't, I don't know if that will happen for sure, but um, it's happened in history in the past, right, where... Uh, where people have been put in isolation camps for various reasons, um, even in our own country during World War II, uh, a lot of uh, Asian Americans were put in, in uh, you know, Japanese were put in, uh, con- you know, essentially concentration camps. Not like Auschwitz; they weren't like persecuted and, and tortured like they were in Germany, but they were put into isolation camps in that during World War II. So we know that under certain circumstances, mankind is capable of doing those kinds of things. Will that happen with the vaccine? We'll wait and see. Um, certainly, I think it's it's not it's not a wildly impossible thing to imagine happening. Um, um, if you consider um, the very very strong shift in the way that those who don't take the vaccine are now being viewed as being sort of the enemy, they're the ones who are potentially causing f- uh, further outbreaks and those kinds of things. Even though statistically and evidentially, we can see that those who take the vaccine are every bit as likely uh, and, and are every bit as responsible for passing on uh, variants and those kinds of things. And so we want to be a little careful that we, um, that we pay attention to the way that the narratives and, and discussions and phrasings are being put out there. Uh, even our own president, Joe Biden, recently talked about, um, you know, is really causing division between those who are vaccinated and those who are not. Uh, and so will it come to the idea of being put in isolation camps? I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm not going to speculate. I, I don't see it as incredibly far-fetched, but but I'm not going to jump on that and say that I know that for sure. I really don't know. Um, uh, UFO information being released and its connection with being an explanation for the rapture. Um, I absolutely think that one potential and very uh, viable uh, explanation for the rapture will be the UFO phenomenon. I think that um, you know, there seems to be this heightened sense of awareness of UFOs, this idea that the government is now releasing information. Of course, that release turned out not to be all that terribly interesting. But, but the idea that there's the acknowledgement of UFOs uh, and that kind of thing. Now, I don't think there actually are aliens from other planets that are visiting us. But I do think that these are spiritual things. I think this is demonic. And I think that they are intended to condition people um, uh, in terms of, of a sense of... of, of our origins, our place in the universe, in a decidedly non, uh, in a way that is decidedly anti the truth. Um, you know, we were created by God. We were put here to know Him and to enjoy Him forever, to love Him and to be in relationship with Him. Christ, uh, Jesus Himself, is the is is God incarnate in the flesh, the Son of God, as we call Him, who came to redeem us from our sin and and to to give us eternal life. In that, this is ultimately the narrative, the meta narrative that runs through all of human history. But there's a different narrative coming that, uh, that, that has always kind of been there as well. There's just, as, as long as the devil in the beginning in the garden tried to lead people away from what God had said, there has always been a counter-narrative, and it's finding lots and lots of different expressions. One of them, of course, is the UFO phenomenon. I find it fascinating that whenever aliens seem to want to talk about religion, they always seem to want to undermine the claims of Christ. Uh, not always, but when it comes up, it seems to be a pretty dominant theme in, in their discourse about such things. And I find that fascinating. Um, and so 
Uh, of course, a lot more could be said on that, but I do think that um, when the rapture happens, they, the world will have to deal with it somehow, and the UFO phenomenon seems to me a, to be a reasonable explanation of that. Um, uh, next question has to do, and again, we're kind of jumping all over. There's a lot of very different questions. This email, I printed out this email. I, I increased the type to 14 so that I could read it easier uh, because uh, even my cheaters are not cheating as well as they should be. But um, but anyway, so but it was nine pages. And so uh, it's nine, not nine pages of constant questions, but I think I've, I've gotten the crux of most of them here. But they, they do span a few different topics. Um, the idea of the fig tree generation um, is, uh, uh, what does that mean? Is it 73 years? Is it 80 years? Does it speak specifically to the generation that was alive when Israel was reborn as a nation in 1948? What is the fig tree generation? Well, Jesus does say, uh, in, uh, in, again, in Matthew 24, where he talks uh, about those, uh, who, uh, let's see, here we go. Uh, In verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And from this passage and others like it, the idea is that that the generation speaks of that generation because the fig tree in in some of these passages is mentioned that the fig tree is symbolic of Israel. Therefore, when Israel comes back in the land, that generation will not pass until all these things come to be. It does not necessarily mean that that generation that has to do with those who were around when Israel was born. Jesus, in in Matthew 24, when he talks about this, he talks about the idea, or when he says this generation, he may be speaking simply about the generation that sees the things that he's describing, not just Israel becoming a nation, um, but all of the other events that he's been describing in Matthew 24, which um, in some places are describing what what is described in Revelation 6 with the seals being broken, the events that take place after, including the abomination of desolation and all those kinds of things. That generation that sees those things unfolding will see the end, uh, the end of the seven years when Jesus ultimately returns. Uh, That is one possibility as well. It is admittedly, uh, verse 34 of chapter 24 is admittedly one of the hardest passages to interpret um, because the word this is not specifically, does not have to mean, uh, I mean, it can lend itself well to these different interpretations. Maybe it's just an easier way to put that. Um, So anyway, so is the fig fig tree generation, that generation that was born in, in and after 19, uh, or in the time of 1948. In other words, that generation, when they die off, will all this stuff wrap up? Uh, I hope so, because we're kind of there, right? But, but in, in reality, the text does not require uh, that. And so, um, so there are a possible couple of ways to see that. Um, next question. Uh, there's a YouTuber that is so sure the rapture will happen because he says the Father spoke to him. Um, Again, I'm not going to mention these YouTubers. I, I, I don't know enough about them to really want to, you know, put their names out there in a pejorative way or in a negative way. But let me just simply say in regard to this particular one and the idea that he's basing his understanding on the rapture happening because God talked to him about it. The Father spoke to him. Um, that is wildly subjective. How do I know the Father spoke to him? I could claim the Father is speaking to me too. And if I say the Father said something different, which one of us do you believe? Well, just whoever you choose to. So it's very subjective. So I, I would say that we, we build our understanding of, of biblical truths from the Bible, from the Scripture. Um, and we don't sort of add weight to it by saying, God told me this. A lot of, you know, um, in recent days, lots and lots of quote-unquote prophets claimed that they knew how the presidential election was going to turn out. Now, I like to kind of joke a little bit about that and say they had a 50-50 shot and they got it wrong, you know? So are they prophets? Well, there's an entire movement among prophetic circles, sort of a document that was written. I I didn't think I was going to talk about that just now. I try and look it up and see if I can connect a link. But it basically was sort of the prophetic community sort of dealing with what about that kind of thing? How do we respond to being wrong in those senses and those kinds of things? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm always very leery when someone, you know, uh, in order to reinforce their position, doesn't really appeal to Scripture so much as they just say God told them something. Um, I, I'm, I'm very prone not to believe that. Uh, not that I don't think God could speak to somebody, but I think that if he does, um, it's not going to be in the absence of what Scripture has talked about in terms of theological issues. I think that the Scripture is always going to have to be 
uh, the basis and foundation of whether or not we believe someone actually heard from the Lord. So um, let's see. And in concert with that, also multiple people have had dreams and visions on YouTube and say Jesus is coming soon. And, uh, um, and you know, some of them apparently have some accurate visions that get posted. Um, one example of this was this pastor in Kentucky. His name escapes me at the moment, but he had uh, a dream about a number of things that he shared with his church. I don't think he went like immediately online and tried to make a big thing of it, but it's just one of those things he shared with his flock or that kind of a thing. But it turned out to, to come to pass. And so suddenly this guy was thrust into sort of Christian fame and, and he was kind of a rock star for a while. And suddenly everybody is asking, well, what do you think is God's message for the body of Christ and the, you know, the whole church and everything since you're getting visions and stuff? Um, again, I, I, uh, I never bought into that. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, maybe God hadn't shared something with him that did come to pass and maybe that was legit, but that doesn't mean all of a sudden he's the mouthpiece for the whole church. God is going to say something to him that the whole body of Christ suddenly now has to sort of listen to. And I don't know that he ever claimed that either. I don't know enough about him, but, uh, but anyway, so I'm always leery about people that get visions and, and dreams and stuff, because if they are not able to be verified, then we ought not to put a lot of stock in them. And so, I, again, I'll appeal to Paul's own writings in 1 Corinthians where he says, let, when it comes to the prophets, let two or three speak, let the others judge. Um, okay, there is the question about uh, the vaccine altering your DNA and corrupting it and, uh, and that kind of thing. Well, um, you know, I, I have spent time looking at this too, and there is, there is a pretty reasonable case to be talked about in terms of some of the RNA and mRNA uh, elements of the vaccine. Um, teaching your cells at, at the molecular, you know, the cellular level to, um, to fight off disease and that kind of thing. I am not a medical expert, so I'm not going to even pretend to be. Um, but chemistry, biology, science, uh, and the means and, and, and abilities that we have nowadays, uh, uh, not only in terms of our technological capacities, but also in the mindset that is under, 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 um, sort of undergirding so much of it. You know, we are part of the fourth industrial revolution that Klaus Schwab wrote about deals with the idea of biotechnology, the idea of, of human enhancement for the sake of bettering and, and, um, and living longer lives. As a matter of fact, I have to read it yet, but I saw, I subscribed to the emails from the World Economic Forum. And uh, I would suggest that you get familiar with the World Economic Forum and, uh, and hop on the website and, and, and do some reading, get an idea of what they're about. Um, but one of the spokes in the wheel of uh, the Great Reset has to do with technology and biotechnology and human enhancement. Uh, one of the articles that they have just put out, I've not had a chance to read it, but the headline struck me. It had to do with the idea of being able to live 150 years. Well, uh, if there's, the only way you're going to do that is not just by eating healthier, but it's going to be by you know, some kind of biotechnological advancements that are made. And so um, uh, I, I don't really know. And he, here's the problem I have with so many things that are online in this, in this subject is that, um, there are so many, uh, wildly varying ideas from people that you've never heard of until now. And you can do all your research to try and find out who's legit and who's not. Um, but nowadays it is not hard to find lots and lots of ways to support arguments that are both true and also false. And so I have a very hard time, uh, and I, I watch lots of stuff. I, I get lots and lots of links to different videos and, and stuff sent to me. And so I try to make sure I'm sort of doing, you know, fairly trying to watch as many different things and listen and, and read as many things as I can, because I don't want to be ignorant of these things. But I just can't quite get myself to where I'm, I'm committed to how far and to what degree that may be happening. Um, you know, uh, but I will say that I have no problem in principle believing that such a thing could be true. Um, um, you know, to, to say that, you know, uh, science is innocuous and amoral and has no real biases or anything like that, I think is ridiculous and silly. Of course, of course, scientists, science is, is done by scientists and scientists like anyone, including myself have biases. And so, uh, is there, you know, um, in, in an effort to get us to a place where we are advanced and we have a big paradigm shift and move forward in terms of our humanity and all these things, those on the side of promoting those ideas, someone like Elon Musk, for example, with uh, the whole neural net, neural link ideas that he's doing, the idea of being able to implant technology in the minds and bodies of people that allow them to 
um, use uh, prosthesis that give them feeling and sensation. It can be controlled literally like an actual limb. Well, you combine things like that with 3D printing or just biotechnology and different ideas, and suddenly you are now in the realm of, of, of human enhancement. Well, bioethicists have been questioning you know, the, the, the ethics of such things for a very long time. And it's interesting reading. It's, uh, it's fascinating to hear some of the debates back and forth. But they, and invariably, at some point, when they push the, the discussion hard enough, the question of bias comes in. The question of morality enters in. Is it the whole question of ethics, which is sort of a, uh, is sort of a secular attempt at, at sort of morality and that kind of thing, by and large. But, but at the heart of it is an inescapable element of morality. And, and everybody's view on the answer to the should um, is based on their own sense of right and wrong, their own belief and worldview and everything. It's a great line from uh, Jurassic Park, Dr. Ian Malcolm, Jeff Goldblum's character, when they're sitting there talking about this incredible accomplishment of bringing back dinosaurs and everything and, and all this. And, and Jeff Goldblum is a little bit mortified by the idea, and he's, he's struck by the lack of humility in terms of what is going on here. And he makes this statement. He says, you know, you, you spent so much time uh, discovering whether or not you could that you never stopped and asked yourselves whether or not you should. Well, that's a moral question, right? And it's, it's an inescapable one in humanity. And so uh, we are moral beings by nature. God has made us that way. Whether or not we acknowledge that, we are. And it's, it's just an inescapable reality. And so um, is the technology there to do things that would uh, alter our DNA? Of course it is. Uh, is there the, the, the will and, uh, and means and intent to use it for such a thing? Maybe. Probably. Again, I have no problem believing that it could be. Um, but in terms of, you know, taking a hard line on some of that, I'm not going to do that because I, I, you know, I'm still a student learning about it as well. But, but I would say that there, there's, there's definitely, it, it should not be dismissed out of hand. Uh, that, that much I would say. Um, uh, okay, then there's a question here about people claiming that due to the events going on in Israel, that we are in the season of the rapture due to all the violence there. And then uh, earlier, the question uh, connected, uh, it was directly connected, but there's also earlier mention of uh, the violence uh, that the church is experiencing. Is this a sign of the soon coming of the rapture in that? Um, that's a good question to speak to for a minute. Um, answer one, the church has always been under persecution. Now, um, I don't know where this uh, uh, reader lives, but I'm, I'm guessing that this reader lives in the United States. Here in the United States, a quote-unquote Christian nation, or at least it was founded on, you know, uh, so much of the Constitution, the Declaration, are built on principles um, that, that have roots in, in uh, Judeo-Christian uh, morality, and, and even the scriptures directly, um, um, we live in a society that with those underpinnings, even as fallen and corrupt as it's becoming more and more every day, we still have a mindset that things should be a certain way because that's what we've grown up with here. Since 1783, the treaty, uh, signing of the Treaty of Paris, we're finally recognized by all the other countries as being a sovereign nation. We have always lived under this. The revolution was fought because of the beliefs of such principles. So therefore, our DNA as a country unintended with the previous question, but our DNA as a, as a country uh, is rooted in such ideas. And so therefore, when persecution comes upon the church in Western countries that hold these ideals, uh, it seems like a new thing because that's not what we're used to. We're used to certain uh, freedoms of expression and religion and practice and those kinds of things, freedom of speech and those kinds of things. So when, when in a Western country, in particular like the United States, starts to get persecuted as believers, as you start to be seen as outcasts for believing in God and specifically being a Christian, um, that feels like a new thing. But it feels like a new thing to us. But for any believer, virtually anywhere else in the world, for most of history since the birth of the church, and even if you want to go further back in terms of Israel and her persecutions, this is just goes with the territory. This is something that has always been true and, and just zeroing in on the church, the church has always been persecuted. And so is that a sign of the soon coming rapture? Well, no, I don't think so. I think persecution comes. Paul himself said, anyone who lives, uh, seeks to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So that just goes with the territory. Here's the other answer, though. What is the rapture for? 
Why is there a rapture? Um, and this should answer lots of this. This answer should actually speak to a number of questions in regard to the rapture, as far as its timing, why is there one, all those kinds of things. The rapture exists because it must exist, and it must exist because the rapture is a pulling away of the bride of Christ before the wrath of God comes down upon an unbelieving world. Now, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.9 that we are not appointed to his wrath, right? There is, and there's a reason why. It's not just that God is choosing to be nice to us and not to others. It's because the wrath that we deserve was taken by Christ himself. And so therefore, when God is bringing judgment down on the world, we can't be here for that because Jesus took our judgment already. So therefore, the rapture, okay? So in other words, the rapture is not just an idea that is a hopeful idea for people that just want to sort of get out of the hardships of life. It's not that actually at all. Um, I mean, that's a byproduct. We, we do get snatched out of a world that is now under the judgment of God and, and the hard times that will come upon it. The church, those who come to faith prior to that point of rapture, do escape it. That's a wonderful byproduct, but it's not the reason why it's there. It's there because God's wrath is not for those who are in belief. Well, then what about those who come to faith afterwards? They have to endure it. Yeah, because in time and space, this is just how it works. You know, there's a point at which this is going to happen. And this is one of the reasons why I think it's important to teach on the rapture and to teach about these things in their biblical context. We don't just, um, A, we don't blow it off, and B, we don't just get sloppy in it. We look at it and we understand it for what it is and we do our best to teach it because... If we, if we don't, then we are not only skipping parts of Scripture, but we're likely misinterpreting those passages to mean something they don't. And that can lead to all kinds of problems. Thirdly, Paul said we should encourage one another with these things. Um, you know, in his whole discussion on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he eventually comes to the idea of the glorified bodies we'll have and how in the twinkling of an eye we'll be snatched away and we'll ever be with the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 4, where he talks about this as well, the idea is that we are to encourage one another because under this persecution, just know this, the day is coming when it's going to be over. It's going to end. Now, he doesn't say you're, you're going to be raptured away just so you don't have to face human persecution, but he's saying the day is coming where you won't have to endure that anymore. But the why is basically what the entire book of Romans is about, dealing with, and, and not just Romans, but Galatians and uh, other places too, where, where the discussion of the gospel and its fullness and what it accomplishes, well, now when we understand that, we realize that the wrath of God fell fully upon Jesus, we understand why we're not going to be here for his wrath. It's not because God's just being nice to us. He is being nice to us, but that's not the why. The why is because Jesus already took it. So, Suffering persecution at the hands of men, that's different. Um, you know, every Christian should expect that persecution is going to come. Nobody should feel exempt from that. Um, that's just part and parcel of the Christian life. So let me encourage you that if you're experiencing persecution, um, I mean, I don't mean to sound flippant about it, but you're in the right place. You know, um, if you're, if people are coming down on you for being a Christian, not an obnoxious Bible thumping, getting everybody's face and being rude. I'm just saying, but just simply for practicing your faith, for truly loving Jesus and living your life for him. People persecute you for that. You're in good company because they persecuted the prophets who were before you as well. Um, okay. Um, he mentions things like, what about blood moons and that kind of thing? I know I'm going to offend a few people with this, but I put no stock in blood moons. I, I mean, I, 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 I just don't. You know, it seems that um, you know, anything I've read on it is interesting, but it does seem to, it does seem to extrapolate a lot of things in order to, to make the case. Um, so, um, you know, uh, yeah, a lot, I guess things could be said on that. I'm not getting on your case. If you, if you like John Hagee's books or whoever's writing about him and you think there's something to it, I just personally, I, you know, I think it's pretty, you know, I don't, I don't really put in a lot of stock in it. So, um, okay. A couple more here. And, uh, Oh, we're actually not doing too terribly bad here. Uh, the two witnesses will prophesy for 1,200... Well, we're not doing too bad on time. You might be thinking I'm doing terribly in terms of answering the questions. But in terms of time, we're not doing too bad. Uh, the two witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days. Uh, and this guy on YouTube claims that it may be from July 12, 2021 to December 22, 2024. Uh, and also... Um, 
they're claiming that Israel could be at war and this could be the beginning of the Gog and Magog war also. Okay, I'll, I'll separate those two questions. Um, the Bible does talk about in Revelation uh, uh, 11, where it talks about the two witnesses and how they begin their ministry. It would seem, and there's some differing views on when their ministry starts. Some put it at the midway point. I put it at the beginning. I think that uh, their ministry is starts with the Antichrist, and they are speaking against him for 1260 days until the midway point of the tribulation. When he overcomes them, they are basically safe and protected by the hand of God for that first 1260 days. And then the Antichrist is able to rise up and ultimately have them killed. They're killed in the streets, they stay there for three and a half days, and then they ultimately rise from the dead and they're swept up, raptured away, as it were, uh, into heaven. And so from that point on, there's another 1260 days, uh, and that leads us to the return of Christ. But that first 1260 days is a biblical thing. Now, the fact that it would start on July 12th, or the idea that it would start on July 12th, 2021, well, this is one of the reasons why I think this is actually copied and pasted from an earlier email to somebody else. Um, but we're past July 12th, and they're not here. So, um, so I, I think that speaks for itself. But it also speaks to the idea that we don't really know when these events will start to take place. We don't know when Daniel's 70th week starts. Uh, I think the rapture will come prior to that. Um, but I don't know when the rapture is, and we don't know when Daniel's 70th week starts. If it does follow the rapture, it doesn't mean it follows immediately after the rapture, but at some point it will start. Uh, and since we don't know when that is, we obviously know it's not July 12th at this point, um, by the way, not that I don't wish it would have happened then, you know, I mean, I, I really do want the Lord to snatch us away. But, um, okay, now what about uh, Israel being at war and that being the beginning of the Gog and Magog War? Um, so uh, uh, the Gog and Magog War, referring to Ezekiel 38 and 39, um, I think that is a separate and, and, and preceding event to Daniel's 70th week. I think that it's likely that part of the reason why the world is ready to embrace an Antichrist may have something to do with the events that take place in Ezekiel 38 and 39 because uh, the world will be uh, will watch the Middle East explode around Israel and a couple things really. Potentially what may be being described there may have something to do with a nuclear conflict in the midst of that, but also because God very obviously comes to Israel's aid on that. Well, when Antichrist comes in, one of the things he's going to do is declare himself to be God and, and demand to be worshipped above all that is called God. Well, this may be partly how the world rallies around him, both in uh, Revelation 19. If Psalm 2 is referring to this same thing, then you know the world is coming against the Lord and is anointed in that, and the Father sits in the heavens and laughs at this whole thing. But the world comes together against Christ at his return. Well, think of the audacity of that, unless you had a leader who you thought was up to that. So who knows? That could very well be. But I think that they are separate events. Uh, Ezekiel 38, 39, Gog and Magog coming against Israel, along with the hordes that come with Gog and Magog. And then you've got Daniel's 70th week, which I think is a later and separate event. There is mention of Gog and Magog in Revelation chapter um, 20. Um, I always say 20. I think it's 21, actually. Boy, you'd think I would have that etched in my brain by now. But um, but anyway, um, so it is, uh, uh, yeah, it's in 20. And um, so because they're mentioned in chapter 20, there is this thought that this is what Ezekiel 38 and 39 is talking about. I don't think so. I just think, again, Gog and Magog are once again prominent uh, among the nations that uh, after the millennium, uh, they, you know, they those who are born during that period of time uh, from that particular um, part of the world when they, they don't want to worship the Lord, but instead Satan is able to use them and influence them ultimately to come against Christ in Jerusalem after or at the end of the millennial period. Okay, uh, is there's mention of Israel's upcoming covenant with Antichrist. Uh, we've kind of alluded to that already. Um, that is something that will be coming soon, and it will also mark the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. Um, let's see. Uh, I think we're just about there. Um, now there are other questions by the way too, but most of them revolve around things that we've talked about in answering these. Um, so if you're the one who wrote this, by the way, Caleb is the gentleman's name. Um, if you're the one who wrote this, forgive me, I didn't get to every single thing, but it's quite a long email, buddy. Um, okay. When Antichrist shows up, he could be Muslim and claims, uh, the person on this channel, uh, mentions that he claims there's a lot of scripture to support the idea that he could be a Muslim. 
There are some passages that I think maybe could lend themselves to that, but I think uh, the stronger passages would lead us to believe that he is at the very least a leader out of a revived Roman Empire uh, a, uh, in Europe uh, around those nations. Um, I think also there is a, I think a strong case to be made that he will be Jewish or at least have Jewish heritage. Um, uh, in Deuteronomy, you know, Moses talks about a prophet rising up like himself uh, and that kind of thing. Now, of course, in one sense, that's fulfilled in Christ, but there's, um, you know, the idea that they that Israel would be, well, of course, it is fulfilled in Christ, but the idea that Israel should be looking for one of their own to be their Messiah is what's really at the heart of that passage. And so for him to be a Muslim, you could argue that, well, from Abraham, right, could be, Maybe, maybe, but I, I do tend to put my money on, uh, I'm not a betting man, but I tend to think that really um, when, when the one comes who will purport to be their Messiah that they do embrace, who's actually the Antichrist, I think he'll be of, uh, of Israeli uh, Hebrew lineage. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, we talked about feasts, uh, talked about the UFOs. Okay. Well, again, didn't get to every single question in the very, very long emails, but I think we covered quite a few. So hopefully that gives you some food for thought. Uh, I didn't mean to sound flippant or quick about anything. It was really just a matter of time trying to make my way through uh, as many as I could. Um, but no doubt you will have questions or thoughts or discussions. I, one of the things I really enjoy when I read the comments uh, on our YouTube channel, I try to read them all. Um, uh, I don't know if I get all of them, but I do try to read as many as I can. But I do love that discussion oftentimes uh, around prophetic things will will crop up. So um, I would just ask that you keep it civil and uh, and try not to be mean-spirited about it, but by all means, uh, engage and enjoy those discussions. And uh, from time to time, again, as, as questions come up about stuff, I'll try to answer them uh, in a Q&A kind of a thing like this. So thanks for watching. And uh, if you want to learn more about our church at Calvary Chapel Franklin, you can go to our website, calvarychapelfranklin.com. You can also um, uh, go to our YouTube channel where you're probably watching this right now and you can uh, catch our Sunday morning services. You can also catch our Wednesday evening services as well. And uh, you can also go to my personal website, parsonspad.com, where you can watch many of these videos and you can also, um, uh, or all these videos really, but uh, you can uh, also subscribe to the audio version as well. I'm really glad you watched. I'm glad we could spend some time talking about these things. Uh, it is really interesting, and um, it's not just fun. It's really interesting and important that we do talk about prophecy in these days um, because we want to have our eyes up. We want to be looking. We want to be expectantly living uh, in, in the light of the fact that Jesus could come at any time. I, I get so completely excited about that. I just love the thought that today could be the day that we go to see the Lord. Um, and I hope you do too. I really hope you do. If, 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 if you feel as though somehow you're going to be missing out on something if Jesus comes today, because after all, I had so many plans, so many things I wanted to do, um, you can't really seriously think that heaven's going to be a disappointment. Uh, if you do, then let me encourage you to know Jesus better, because uh, heaven is heaven in large part, and, and, and really it's its main part, because God is there, and we get to be with him. As believers, we'll see him be unashamed and unafraid. We'll, we're created for that. I mean, it's, it's the, the longing that we have in this life that is perpetually unsatisfied, no matter what we try to fill it with, is, is a testimony itself to the fact that we were made for a different world and the world that we're ultimately going to experience in the presence of God, fully satisfied uh, and fully realizing that which we were created for. So eyes up. Let's pay attention to what's going on in the world around us. And of course, as we do, let's always make sure our Bibles are in our hands and that we are considering what's going on around us from a biblical perspective. And as we've mentioned before, not judge the scripture or, or interpret the scripture by what we see, but interpret what we see by the scripture. And when we do that, we're going to be on safe ground as we uh, begin to interpret the, the times in which we're living, which, as I mentioned before, I'll mention again, I'll probably mention many more times. Jesus expected the people to know when he'd be there the first time. Again, Daniel prophesied the exact day that he would arrive. Uh, and in similar fashion, 
um, especially from passages like uh, Matthew 24, 15, where in the discussion of last things, and in particular, talking about the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. In other words, looking to Daniel's words in the past, Jesus in the present then says, look to the future, and he goes on to say, let the reader understand. In other words, when you read these things, understand them so that you will recognize them. Meaning, in the same way that his first coming was supposed to be recognized, so too should we recognize the signs of his second coming. So be encouraged to study the word, to know these things, to pour yourself into them, uh, because the days in which we're living um, are filled with, with evidences of just about where we are. We don't set dates, but clearly there was going to be a generation that would line up with what Scripture said would be that last generation. And I would challenge you to consider what's going on today. Not just read a headline or two, but dig into what's going on today. And I think you'll walk away realizing that we're in those days. We did a conference some years ago. Don Stewart came out and and, um, and we called it the Times of the Signs Conference. Not just Signs of the Times, but the Times of the Signs. And uh, that was in 2014. Well, we are a little further along and a few more developments have really begun to fill out that picture. So it's exciting. It's exciting times to be living in. So as we go through the scriptures and talk about these things together, be encouraged and let your eyes be lifted up because Jesus is coming for us soon. Father, we thank you for that hope. We thank you for the knowledge that one day Jesus will come, will snatch us away and bring us as his bride home. Uh, We thank you that in the days in which we're living, you've given us opportunity to be Uh, to be about your business, primarily that business of knowing you and knowing you well. Even as Jesus said, this is the will of the Father, that we would know the one whom he sent. And so help us to know Jesus uh, as deeply, as meaningfully, and biblically as we can. Help us to seek him out uh, and to know him and walk with him. And also, Father, to be about your business in terms of our dealings in this life. Help us to touch lightly those things that are going to perish uh, uh, ultimately, uh, in this in this world, and instead help us to invest ourselves in the next. Uh, Father, we thank you that one day we'll say goodbye to all of the pain, the suffering, the confusion, the hurt, the harm, the damage, the destruction, the wickedness, the evil, uh, just all of that which is so more deeply pervading this world now than it's ever been. Uh, one day it'll be over and we'll be with you. And we thank you that the hope, our knowledge that we will be with you is based on what Jesus finished on our behalf. We thank you that Jesus died on the cross for our sins once and for all, and that he not only died and was buried in the grave, but he also rose from the grave to life everlasting, and he ever lives to make intercession for us, seated at the right hand, at your right hand. And we thank you for this. We thank you that he sent the Holy Spirit to fill us and seal us as, uh, as a guarantee of, of the fact that one day we'll be there in your presence, but not only to seal us for that day, but to empower us also for this day. And we pray that he would flood us, Lord, with his power and, and guidance and leading as we seek to walk with Jesus, letting every moment of our lives be fertile ground for him to work in and through. So thank you, Father, for all of this. We pray that, Father, you just continue to help us as students of your word to know you and to know you well and to live in the great expectation of your sons coming to get us. Thank you, Father. We love you, we praise you and bless you, and we do pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.